10 through 12. Those will serve as our theme, or our text rather, as well. So Exodus 18, page 115, the verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was encamped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships that they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he now bless that to us. Beloved in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the book of Exodus has as its major theme the redemption of God's people from a cruel and wicked enslavement. It is the story of salvation. It's a lovely, wonderful picture of what Jesus would accomplish with his death on the cross. The picture of Egypt and of its cruelty, of its desire to subjugate Israel is a picture of what sin does to us, what death does to us. And what God accomplished through Moses, he accomplished the greater glory through Jesus Christ. He delivered us from that oppression. He delivered us from that power and from that sin. But that's not all of the story. That's the main theme. That's the big story. That's the big picture. That's the big overarching story of Exodus. But there are a few sort of more minor, we would say not minor in, 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 in the sense of significance, but, but less prominent themes in the book of Exodus that are equally important. And they, they concern the, the reason, the, the unto what God accomplished all of this. Why did God do this? Not in the sense of what motivated God, but in the sense of to what end? What is the consequence? God did this thing. He delivered his people, but to what did he deliver them? He took them out of Egypt, yes, but what did he bring them into? What is it that he accomplished 
in their lives. And here we have two answers in the book of Exodus. The first is he brought them to worship. We've seen this repeatedly uh, through our study of the book of, of Exodus. We've heard Moses say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship their God in the desert. We sometimes forget how important worship is to the Lord. It sometimes isn't as important to us because of the distractions of life, because of the challenges of life, because of the circumstances of life. But for God, worship is the thing for which his pe- he delivers his people. He frees them so that they might, so that we might worship. That we might gather in the praise of God's name and offer our lives in freedom and in gratitude to him for the salvation that we've all received. What we're doing right now is the consequence, the glorious consequence of Christ's redeeming work. And we must always keep those things together. But the second theme the second reason or consequence for the exodus is not so much for the people of God as it is for the world in which we live. Because exodus is a story about evangelism. It doesn't seem like a story about evangelism given how the Lord deals with Pharaoh and how their people how they suffer the plagues and how they end up dying all of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. It's hardly a a good missionary strategy, it seems to me, and to you undoubtedly as well. But there is very much an evangelistic theme that runs through this entire story that God is concerned with the people of the world hearing about Him. Now that shouldn't surprise us because that is something the Lord's busy with throughout redemptive history. That's not just a New Testament thing. When God spoke His word of promise to man and woman in the garden, He spoke the word of promise for a global salvation. When He came to Abram, He said, I will bless all the nations of the world through you. The Lord's desire to see many saved, to see all the nations of the world evangelized, runs throughout all of Scripture, including the book of Exodus, where God's word to Pharaoh was first of all a word of warning, a word of warning to those who are living in sin. You cannot rebel against God and survive. He will be victorious. It was a word that was intended to warn the Egyptians, to warn the nations of the world. You cannot rebel against God and win. But it was also an invitation to God, from God to join with His people, to join in the worship of His name. Think of those people that left with Moses and the Israelites from the people of, Pharaoh, from the people of Egypt, who joined themselves with the church of Jesus Christ, with the people of God, because they had seen the wonder, the glory of God. Now, it is that theme of evangelism, both of the warning and the call, that is brought to us here in chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Exodus. Chapter 17 tells us about the Amalekites. You'll remember Moses had his hands raised up with his staff. You remember that story? That's one example of how the world responds to the gospel message. It is the response of anger. It is the response of condemnation. The world wants nothing to do with that. I think we know a thing or two about that in our day. But there is another response as well, and that's what's found in our text this morning. 
It is the response of Jethro. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, Zipporah's dad. We met him a long time ago when Moses first left Egypt. You remember after he killed the Egyptian and then the, the Israelites said to him, are you going to kill me too? And then Moses knew that he was in trouble, so he fled from before Pharaoh and he came then to the, to the priest of Midian's house. He came to the well, you remember, and he helped the girls feed their flocks and the priest said, bring him in. And so they did and he lived with, with Jethro and his family and then married his daughter Zipporah. Jethro, who's a priest of Midian. Now, we don't know a priest of whom. We don't know what God he served. Some argue that he served the Lord God, and I suppose that's possible. We've met Melchizedek before, and he was a priest of God. But Moses tells us in the story of Melchizedek that he was a priest of God, and there's nothing in the story of Jethro that tells us he was a priest of God. And in fact, it seems to me that we have in this event the conversion of Jethro, which suggests, therefore, that he had to come from something. He had to come from unbelief. So it is likely that Jethro, as a priest, was a priest in some idol god. He was the priest of some temple or some religion that was a false religion that wasn't the religion of the Lord. But listen then, if you keep that in mind, if you think of Jethro as a priest, think of that, a priest in another religion. I mean, if there is someone less likely to be converted, to be brought to faith in Jesus Christ, surely it is the priest of a false religion. This is a man who's devoted himself to worshiping another God, worshiping in another way, to defending his faith, to explaining his faith, to enforcing his faith. Surely this is a man who's not going to come to the Lord. That's, that's what we think, isn't it? That there are people in this world, people in our lives, that we think will never possibly get converted, could never come to know the Lord. They're so entrenched in their ungodliness, so deep in their sin. Maybe they're so wealthy they don't think they need help. Maybe they're so completely uh, in their family and in their community, so entrenched in their religion that to pull them out would seem impossible. Well, Jethro's one of those guys. And now listen to how the text begins. Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro heard. How did Jethro hear? How did Jethro come to hear about what God had done? Well, the simplest answer is that Zipporah had told him because the next thing we get is that Zipporah was sent away by Moses to Jethro, her father. We don't know when Moses did that. Some would suggest that he did that before the pyrotechnics, before all of the events around Egypt happened in order to keep her and his sons safe. Moses was an object of ridicule, of of anger, of judgment from Egypt, from Pharaoh, from the the people of, of, of Egypt. It's reasonable to think that they might have wanted to harm him or harm his wife and children, and so Moses puts them into safekeeping. Maybe it was after the the, the crossing of the Red Sea, others argue that, that after the crossing of the Red Sea, as Moses and the Israelites went one way, he sent his wife to go tell his father-in-law about what the Lord had done. We don't know what the answer is, why or when Moses sent Zipporah and his sons to to his father-in-law. All we know is that he did, 
And he sent them with a message. He sent them with a word. He sent them with the names of his two sons. Notice that. We're told very specifically here about these two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, sons whose names have confessional qualities about them. They're not just names, labels. They're not just something you attach to somebody. They're testimonies of Moses, of Moses' faith in God. Gershom speaks to his being an alien in a foreign land and Eliezer of God's being his help and saving him from the hand of Pharaoh. That would be the first time Moses was saved from the hand of Pharaoh because these two boys were born in, in the home of, of Jethro. They were born before all of the events of the Exodus. But now Gershom and Eliezer, now Zipporah, come back to Jethro and they come with this story of God's saving power. And Jethro hears. Jethro hears. Sometimes we over think things. Sometimes we, when it comes to the witnessing and the evangelism of the world and of friends and neighbors, of co-workers, we overthink it. And here it is. This is as simple as it gets. Jethro hears. He's told. He's told by his family. His daughter tells him. His son-in-law makes sure that he hears about what God had done. That's where the story of evangelism, where was the story of the witness and the work of the church begins by spreading the word. It's not about programs. It's not about designed events that that are all equipping people to come to faith. It's about telling people about what God has done. We all have people in our lives. We all have family or friends or coworkers or neighbors who don't know the Lord, who don't understand the reason why we worship, who don't understand the wonder of our God. And all we need to do is tell them. They need to hear. Does that mean that they're going to all come to the faith? No, they might be some like the Amalekites, get angry and do war against the church. But you see, there will also be a Jethro among them who hears and then who comes who comes to God and to his people. He's moved to come as priest of Midian. He leaves behind his people, leaves behind his flocks and his herds, and he comes and he says, I need to hear more about this Messiah. He comes to Moses. Moses brings him into the tent, and Moses lays out for him in glorious detail all the things that the Lord had done. In fact, that's one of the things we ought to note about this story of Moses' to his father-in-law. Moses meets him and kisses him, and then they go into the tent, and and it says in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done. Do you begin to hear the the emphasis? Do you begin to hear the, the message? Time and again, we read that word Lord, and now in capital letters in our English Bibles, which is a reference to the name, the covenantal name of God, the go- name that God had given to Moses at the burning bush, bush when he said, 
who should I say sent me? And then the Lord said, Yahweh, I am who I am, sent you. That's who you are to say, I am who I am, which is to say the covenant-keeping God, the God who does what he promises to do, the God who a long time ago said, I'm going to save for myself a people. And every step along the way, God has been doing just that. This is the grand story of salvation. That's where this part of Exodus fits in. It fits in to the story of God's fulfilling his plan and purpose to redeem for himself this world and his people in it that they might live in total worship and praise of his name. And at every step along the way, we are unfaithful. You think of the flood. You think of Abram. You think of Jacob and his sons. It is the story of a broken people, the story of a rebellious people, a story of a people that can't keep it straight. And at every point along the way, the Lord is faithful. Israel ends up in Egypt in this misery, in this grief and sorrow, and God comes to rescue them. God comes into their, into their misery and struggle, and he saves them for himself. The Lord, the Lord is his name. Moses tells Jethro, not about God's power so much, though that was certainly true, not about God's, God's ability to do amazing things, his miracles, although that's certainly true. He tells him about God's steadfast love. He tells him about God's commitment to his people. And that's the, that's the core, isn't it? That's the heart of the story that we have to tell as well. When we tell the story of redemption, when we tell the story of salvation, what is the, what is the central thought? What is the beating heart of our witness to our family, to our friends, to our own children? When we tell our own covenant youth, when we raise our children in the home and we talk to them about the faith, what's the... What's the central bit that we impress upon their hearts every time we tell the story? The truth is sometimes, unfortunately, and it's not always a a conscious decision we make, but sometimes what we leave people with the impression, uh, we leave people with the impression that the heartbeat of the faith is doing things. That, That we do this and we do that. So we talk to our children, we talk to them about, we go to church and we, uh, we do devotions and we do these things. And that's, of course, all very good. Obviously it is. But sometimes we leave people with the impression as a result that religion, that spirituality, that our Christianity is really about doing. It's about being good, about being better, about being a, a, a people that are worthy, which, of course, sets us up for in tremendous failure uh, because we're not. Um, eventually our kids learn that, right? Our, our, we tell our children that they've got to be good and then we set for them an example and eventually our kids find out that we're not good. Um, and that causes then this sort of existential crisis, this moment where they go, wait a second, um, mom and dad, um, you know, you set yourself up as this paragon of virtue and I've discovered you're not and now what? And, and that happens in the world too, doesn't it? The world has this odd expectation that we're going to be a much better people and that expectation when they meet us is shattered and it causes them to disregard and dismiss the church. And to some degree, we, we should be better. That is true. The Spirit of God is at work in us. We ought to be living more holy lives without question. But some of the reason for that is because we set the wrong expectation. 
because we don't tell the world that our faith, our religion, our spirituality is not about how good we are and how much we can do and what the things are that we do. But that the story of our lives is the story of a faithful God, a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, a God who committed to redeeming us in the face of our wickedness. Oh, we're miserable. I don't serve the Lord nearly the way that I ought, especially in light of what he's done in Jesus Christ. So if the story's ever about me, I'm in trouble, you're in trouble, the story's in trouble. But when it's the story of a faithful God to an unfaithful people, when it's the story of a God with steadfast love, a God who is gracious and kind, a God who condescends to his people, a God who lifts them up out of their misery, out of their sorrow, out of the ash heap as we sang at the outset of our service, if it's the God of, or if it's the story of a God who takes on the form of a man, his own creature, and hangs on the cross and mind-numbingly wonderful truth, then we present to the world not the truth of who we are, of our worthiness, but of our Lord, of his worthiness. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of the worship that we offer. That's the why of salvation. That's the ultimate why of salvation. That's the why behind the cross of Calvary. Why? Why would God do this? Why? Because He is a God of faithfulness. Because He is the Lord. That is, He is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And we need to remember that as God's people, first of all. That's, that needs to be something that impresses itself anew upon our hearts today. Because the truth is, we can get lost in that. The Israelites got lost in that. You remember how they came the second time to not have water? Remember the first time they, they didn't have water and then they said, well, we're all going to die because we don't have water. And then the second time they didn't have water, they said to Moses, give us something to drink because they'd taken God's goodness and grace for granted, because they had taken the mercy of the Lord towards them as required, as ordinary, as expected. We can do the same thing in our lives. We can take the privilege of worship. We can take the privilege of raising our children in the faith. We can take the privilege of witnessing to the world. We can take the blessedness of forgiveness and grace and peace and we can take all of these things for granted and we can think that somehow or another we are owed them you you know how it is that you know somebody has taken the grace of god for granted you can tell that they've taken it for granted when they do one of these things when they judge other people unfairly when they look down their noses when they get angry when they get self-righteous the only way you can be self-righteous is if you don't know how how much of a savior you need the only way you can look down your nose at somebody is if you don't understand why jesus christ came for you that's one of the ways we demonstrate that we haven't grasped the gospel yet or in the ways that we take things for granted in the way that we that we don't value, don't wonder at the privilege of worship. You think about this afternoon, we have an opportunity to come again. 
Are we amazed? Are we filled with awe? Are we eager to again praise the living God? Yeah, or is it, you know, meh, ordinary? Or think of the times when we face trials. When we face trials and then we say to the Lord, why, Lord, why? This is unfair. I don't deserve this. Why, Lord, why? There is a good place for why. Don't misunderstand. There is a good place for struggling with the Lord. Of course there is. But sometimes the reason that we struggle with that is because we don't think we deserve this because we say, wait a second, this isn't right. I don't deserve this. Why don't you deserve this? Well, because I've done everything right. I go to church. I give in the offering. But that's not what makes a person right. What makes a person right is faith in Jesus Christ. What makes a person right is the grace of God in his son. The point only is to demonstrate that we can lose the why. We can lose the plot when it comes to salvation. And when we lose the plot, we bring to the world a, a, a truth that isn't there. We say to the world, you've got to do these things. You gotta, if you want to be blessed like us, you've got to follow these ten lovely rules. And that's not it at all. If the world wants to be blessed like us, they should just join us in worshiping God. They should just stand in awe of the God who keeps covenant. He is faithful to all who cry out to him in Jesus Christ. And when they see, when they join with us in seeing this, when we are convicted ourselves, when it's deep inside of us so that it shines to the world around us and the world understands this, then they'll come to us, come with us and they'll worship. That's what Jethro does. That's how our text ends. Jethro's delighted. He recounts, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, he says, that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Now it's worth noting that that language almost becomes technical in the Old Testament. Now I know. It's only used two other times. It's used with the widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, verse 24. You remember that the prophet went to live with her and after, well, you know the story. And it's 2 Kings 5, verse 15, which is again the story of Naaman. You know that story too, the going into the Jordan. So you have these two stories, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5, in which that language of now I know that the Lord is the great God, is used. The widow of Zarephath was a Gentile. She wasn't a believer. She wasn't a member of the church of Jesus Christ. She wasn't a member of the people of God. She became one through the mercies of God. Naaman, also not a, not a believer, not a member of the church. He was a Gentile, but becomes one by the grace and mercy of God. So these two Gentiles use this word, these, this language, now I know, to describe their coming to the faith there's every reason then to believe that that's exactly what's happening here, isn't there? That when Jethro says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly, that he's converting, that he's turning away from his old ways and turning to the Lord. And indeed, we discover then, don't we, that Jethro brings an offering and a sacrifice to God, and Aaron and all the elders of Israel come to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law, in the presence of the Lord. Now it's worth again noting that this, the language of the original text emphasizes that Jethro provides the animals for the sacrifice, but he doesn't offer the sacrifice himself. That's sometimes missed or confused here. 
they th- people think that Jethro, as a priest, offers the offering to the Lord, but that's not what the text says. The text says that he provided the animals for the offering, which is to say that Jethro here comes not as a priest, but as a supplicant, as someone seeking the Lord, as someone in need of forgiveness, as someone who needs to satisfy the Lord, to to be restored and reconciled to the Lord. That's what all of those sacrificial systems were all about. And so when he brings the offering on on his behalf before the Lord, he's seeking the Lord's mercy and love. He's worshiping the Lord for his grace and goodness. He's entering into fellowship. And indeed, there is that lovely picture of fellowship of Aaron and Moses and all the elders eating with Jethro. Jethro is brought into the fellowship of God's people. He's embraced by the community and he's included now within the company of the redeemed. That's that's what happens in this event. Jethro hears about who God is and what God has done through the ministry of his family. He comes to learn of the faithfulness of God, a faithfulness that brings to the cross of Calvary the Son of God in order to redeem us from our sins. And he worships God in response. I mean, it's the most basic story, isn't it? You hear, you answer, you worship. It's the story that we are called all to participate in. It's the story that we're all a part of because we have heard the good news of God and it has brought us to worship. But now it needs to be what we bring to the world. You see, Jethro is the counterpoint to the Amalekites. Jethro is, is, the re, is, is a picture of the reason for why God, one of the reasons for why God did all of this. Yes, he did it in order to deliver his people. But he did it, did it so that those people might be a witness to the world, a light to the nations. That others may hear about how great our God is. That he's not a tribal God. He's not a limited God. He is the God of heaven and earth. And Jethro hears that. Jethro learns the wonder of it. And Jethro offers his life in worship for it. That's what we desire for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family. That's what we desire for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. That they might experience the great theme of Exodus. The redemption of a people from oppressive slavery and cruel wickedness. Out of darkness into light. Out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of our God. And how do they come to experience that? How do they come to join with us in worship? By hearing the good news of the gospel. By our telling them what the Lord has done of His steadfast love, of His faithfulness, of His grace, of His goodness. Something we must be convinced of first of all. And then we see the people of God growing. The Word of God spreading. The name of God being exalted. See, this is the point, isn't it? Of the book of Exodus. God redeems for himself a people that they might worship him, but not them alone, that all the world may enter in and say, the Lord is greater than all other gods.
Let's praise him for that in prayer. Merciful God and Father, you've given to us a command to go into all the nations and to speak. That's not easy for us, Lord. We get nervous. And we get nervous because there are Amalekites out there. There are people who get angry, who do battle with us. And we are much more inclined, O Heavenly God and Father, to quietly remain among ourselves. And yet there are Jethro's out there, Lord. There are those in our families and friends, in our co-workers, neighbors, who you want to praise you, who you want to draw near to yourself. Help us, Lord, to speak that word to them. Help us to tell them about your steadfast love. And then help us to invite them into your presence and to embrace them to embrace them in the fellowship of believers. Help us, Lord. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.